Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh is urging the Prime Minister to work with premiers to find solutions for the health care crisis. We'll get into the details of that. Ontario's tourism sector continues to struggle with the impacts of the pandemic. Chris Bloor, the president of the Tourism Industry of Ontario, will join us to talk about the concerns. And the Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem says it's going to be a tough stretch ahead to bring inflation under control. What trends are going to make it more difficult? You'd be surprised. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We're drawing towards the uh, end of the year, of course, and that also means that uh, Parliament and the and Queen's Park folks are going to be taking some time off over the next little while. So we're kind of getting into the year-end statements now from the prime ministers and premiers, etc. cetera. Uh, but we have crises going on in this country. One of them is an economic crisis, of course. Uh, the other is healthcare, and uh, some of the, the stories we're hearing over the last couple of days are really troubling. Uh, it's being called an urgent and escalating situation in Canada's children's hospitals, especially. The NDP are requesting an emergency debate in the House of Commons, setting several alarming developments in hospitals over the last little while. You remember the story last week, of course, with uh, the Children's Hospital of Eastern Ontario, that's in Ottawa, actually had to call in the Red Cross to help support some of the numbers of young children with respiratory illnesses. Close, Brianna Carnegie has those details for us. We are at a breaking point. NDP leader Jugmeet Singh is urging Justin Trudeau to work with the premiers and find solutions for this health care crisis. The solutions are going to require making sure we increase our recruitment, so more training of frontline healthcare workers, making sure that there are more spaces available. His call for urgent action comes as hospitals across Canada turn to extraordinary measures to deal with the influx of sick children. But this nurse, Rachel, says because of the demand, staff are unable to provide the care they're trained to give. It cannot continue. We need more nurses desperately. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. So what are the political implications of this? Uh, let's, let's delve into that if we could. And to do that, please to welcome back to the program, Muhammad Ali, who is a senior consultant with Crestview Strategies. And Muhammad, great to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me back. I, I don't think everybody is, is aware of the, the, the severity of this, uh, especially when it comes to children's hospitals and, and the influx of respiratory illnesses that are going on. Uh, it's become a political football, I guess not surprisingly in many people's minds. But uh, yesterday, as, as you saw, Jagmeet Singh, the NDP leader, is actually talking about perhaps uh, withdrawing from the supply and confidence agreement that he signed on with the Liberals over the last little while, which uh, would most likely cause Parliament to dissolve and, and could send us into an election. Uh, is he bluffing or is, is, is it that bad that, that Singh would actually take that sort of a drastic measure? I'll answer it this way. One, it's I think he's fully bluffing because there is he'll never get a better deal than what he's getting right now with, with this Liberal government uh, to get key priorities that the NDP care about forward. But second, uh, he will be like the NDP will be punished by voters who because it will be painted as him leading the country into another early election. So, you know, he has to really balance out how this is sort of how he's going to use this sort of as a leverage because, you know, there are priorities that he's still working on. Healthcare, he sort of had a, a bit of a 180 uh, over the weekend. Once he was saying, no, look, I'm going to work with the, the prime minister. I, you know, the agreement looks strong. You know, we're, we're happy with it. And then like 48 hours later, he's like, no, I'm going to rip up this deal because if you don't do more healthcare transfers, like I, you know, you, you you almost lose all credibility when you keep doing that over and over and over again. It's not the first time he's done something like this. So it's, I, I'm, I'm calling his, uh, I, the government will call his bluff. And I think he is bluffing because he will never get a better deal than what he has right now. 
and, and that's the political end of things. The other element, too, I guess from a practical standpoint, though, Mohammed, uh, you heard a couple of the things that, that uh, he was talking about that the government should be doing in order to bring more people into the system. We've already had that discussion, and, and the government, both provincial and federal government, have tried to make some, uh, some initiatives to get that happening. He also wants to have a sit-down with the premiers. Uh, and on a hypothetical basis, that may make a lot of sense, but, I mean, there's hardly ever anything productive comes out of those meetings. Uh, it, it just seems as if he's just throwing stuff against the wall here, hoping some of it sticks, but they're not real solutions. No, the, he is doing that. I think you crystallize it perfectly. And uh, what he is sort of outlined, and he, he said, like, we need more doctors and nurses. Well, the federal government has opened up the floodgates for more immigrants to come in, particularly skilled immigrants, making it easier for, you know, they're working towards making it easier for international medical graduates and others to come to Canada so that they can get, they can work here. The second layer, which is actually the real barrier that we deal with is the regulatory bodies in each province. Each province actually is the one that licenses and accredits uh, doctors and nurses, not just from abroad, but from other provinces. So if you're going from Nova Scotia to Ontario, it ain't that easy. So uh, this is, you know, it's a very cute way for Jagmeet to just sort of paint this as sort of a federal swing. But I mean, they're putting, they're trying. Some provinces are also trying, like Ontario is trying to work through some of their pieces. Um, and, you know, uh, Premier uh, Fury out of Newfoundland is also trying. So there are that com- there's that component. But then he also admits, oh, you can't trust Doug Ford, you can't trust Daniel Smith. Well, that's precisely what the Prime Minister has been saying. He's like, look, I need assurances and, you know, uh, commitments that what are you exactly going to do with increased funding? I will give you increased funding, but I got to know what you're going to do. I don't want this simply to go to tax cuts and tax rebates for your election uh, opportunity. So, you know, the Prime Minister is trying to be fiscally disciplined, despite what many uh, of his distractors may, may like to say. So he's trying to be disciplined, and he's like, look, I will put the money there, but you need to agree to some principles. And when premiers and their health ministers are saying, no, this is going to be a failed negotiation before it even starts, like, you're, you're really not helping your case. And so the prime minister is, is in, you know, calculating with his uh, minister of health and minister of government affairs to really try to find a solution. But they're not going to have the money talk until they figure out what the money is going to go towards. Well, and, and that's, I think, what's confusing an awful lot of people right now. Because I, I'll tell you right now, if you sat down to, you know, with all the premiers right now, the first thing you're going to say is just give us more money. And, and his answer is going to be, well, show me what you're spending the money on. Because as you mentioned, part of the problem here that the premiers don't seem to want to admit to is at the provincial level. It's the regulatory bodies and it's where the money's being allocated. And it's going to be different in Alberta than it is in Ontario, than it is in Nova Scotia. Uh, this is not a federal healthcare system. It's it's ten different healthcare systems run by the the different premiers. Yeah, and and also, uh, you know, we can't forget the territory as well. They have their own yeah, exactly. their own agencies, and they, many of these provinces are also running budget surpluses. So when they're crying poor, it's really hard to take them seriously. When it's like, well, like you have just ran a budget surplus. Oh, by the way, you're giving away uh, five hundred dollar checks to everyone, uh, including those who who aren't actually feeling the pains of inflation. So, you know, you're, instead of investing in the very thing that most Canadians are hyper-concerned about, which is the healthcare and access to healthcare, access to a doctor and nurse, well, the Prime Minister is not going to be giving money to basically cover your ability to give tax cuts and tax rebates to people. So, again, it has to come back to, like, where is it tied towards? Are you simply just going to displace your own funding 
internally at the provincial level and territory level to just simply to do things that helps your election uh, opportunities like that is the the back and forth and it's no shocking that premiers want no strings attached funding they always do but ultimately the the prime minister has to be disciplined in his what money he is giving forward this is a lot of money uh and it's a big ask by the premier so you know he has a right uh, as a as a head of the federal government to ask like how is this how is this going to be spent because you know, some of you are, are probably mismanaging it. Some of you will probably use it properly. And so I think in the future, we'll see probably bilateral deals as opposed to a pan-Canadian uh, deal with, with the promises on, the, on healthcare funding. But isn't that how he's pretty much, I'm talking to the, the Prime Minister at this stage anyway, Mohammed. this is pretty much how he does business with the provinces, isn't it? I think he's come to the realization, and I think past Prime Ministers have as well, that you're never going to get consensus when you get all these people in the same room. But, okay, well, it's going to... He does one-offs. He'll do a deal with Ontario, deal with Quebec, a deal, et cetera, et cetera, just as they did with healthcare. I mean, there was a, a healthcare plan, but each one was tailored to each different province. And uh, whether you think that's the best way to do it or not, it's it's getting things done. Uh, he's probably going to take that same approach to the, this healthcare crisis right now. He's not going to get everybody in that room and say, "Okay, we're all going to agree on this," because they're not going to. No, then they won't. And I think uh, they will look at the childcare deal model where they found success and, you know, saying, look, here's the pot of money. Here's what we want. We're going to do a bilateral deal with each of you. And ultimately everyone signed a deal. Obviously Ontario took the longest for its own, uh, its own internal politics, not to get into that, but uh, you know, each, each province did that. And, and look, the prime minister, you know, there was reports of like, he's already looking at the bilateral deal, which I think is probably the most efficient route to go because provinces like Quebec, and Alberta, Saskatchewan, I'm talking about sovereignty every every other day, uh, are are probably left out in the cold if they don't get online and, and get on, get in line, sorry, and and talk about the principles of which the funding should go towards. So I think you know the Atlantic provinces, Ontario, and BC are, are far more well positioned because I think they're trying to have real conversation uh, about what could we really work towards as solutions to increase primary care, increase data collection. We don't have enough data to determine. Are we, do we have enough doctors? How, did, how many doctors are working? How many nurses? And what types of nurses, types of doctors? We don't have that information readily available to make very timely decisions. Hence why some of our pandemic response was a little bit disjointed. Uh, we need data. And, and so the government is really thinking about not only right now, but also how do we uh, strengthen and make it sustainable in the future? I just got a couple of minutes left here, Mohammed. I want to swing back to your point earlier about the political end of this too, uh, which is is not the priority. It's it's healthcare, and we want to make sure that that gets done and rectified. But from a political standpoint, for for Mr. Singh to make the sorts of statements that he did yesterday, uh, as you say, is it, I, I think it's somewhat irresponsible. Uh, but the reality here is that uh, I'm sure the premier or the prime minister rather is is, is thankful that there's a deal here that he can count on, uh, as long as you know that agenda is being addressed at the same time. But it would be political suicide for the NDP to pull the plug on this parliament, wouldn't it? I mean, they're in fourth place. They're not even the third party. You know, the bloc have more seats than they do right now. And and there's a possibility, and we've seen this happen in Ontario in the last provincial election, where they could fall to irrelevancy on a national basis if they get, you know, wiped out in the next election. Yeah, he he has been very careful. And that's why I said, like, he, this is, he will probably be punished at the polls if he is the reason we have another election, particularly when, like, crises we're dealing with um high inflation and such so th they're not in a position to even pick up seats right now let alone 
maintain their current batch, I, I, in my view. And so uh, if, if they want to see success that they have put forth in this agreement, not all the things have been met yet because there's timelines to meet the rest of them. Well, voters are going to ask, and well, you have an opportunity to, to complete some of these, and you chose to go to an election for your own greed and poor judgment. So why should we trust you now? And so that puts the liberals in a better position because they can say, look, we tried to work with them. We tried to be, uh, you know, try to build, you know, negotiate and, and have a working relationship. And they tore it up for reasons that don't make entire lot of sense when we're working towards the very solution and trying to get a solution for healthcare, for other things, right? So it's it's a, a, a poor decision making if that's how Jagmeet Singh ends up uh, taking that route. I mean, if, if Parliament is going to, you know, implode and, and, you know, we're going to get into an election sometime in 2023, it's usually because one of the political parties, either the one that's in power, such as the Liberals now, or, or the ones that are nipping at their heels, think they got a chance at winning. Uh, and, and right now, I don't think anybody feels that, that they've got that opportunity right now, do they? You know, it, it's that's uh, a good point. And, you know, the Conservatives, you know, they're polling uh, higher than the Liberals, uh, not a lot of people are thinking about an election. People just want solutions. Uh, people are sort of learning Pierre Polliver. So th- it's it's tough to say how between a liberal conservative what the end result would be. But right now, in terms of you know election readiness, uh, no party is truly election ready. Uh, you know the liberals are working towards that to make sure they're ready to go. But I don't see the NDP and the conservatives just ready just yet. The conservatives obviously are much more flush with cash given their leadership race. Uh, but there's still work to be done. And so, you know, 2023, I think if, if tensions continue to rise, expect to see each of these parties rapidly mobilize internally to be ready for an imminent election. Well, we'll see uh, what's going to be in the tea leaves for 2023, but uh, I think it's a little premature as well that uh, Mr. Singh would make those comments. Mohammed, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for this. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks for having me. Have a good day. You too. Mohammed Ali, Senior Consultant with Crestview Strategies, uh, with an eye on what's going on in the federal political scene. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We rely on, on tourism in in this part of the country, and, and that goes right across the province of Ontario, certainly. And I know invariably when we bring that up, you start thinking about, yeah, cross-border people. Yeah, we want Americans to come up here. We certainly do. Uh, but you know, we travel too. You, you want to go to a different city, you want to have some time, and there's so many different aspects to the tourism industry. Uh, and the, the, the wet web and the network that's set up as a result of this, and they're hurting right now. And they've been hurting for quite some time. As the pandemic has, has really kind of laid this industry to waste. Uh, a new report from the Ontario Chamber of Commerce right now says the province's tourism industry is not expected to recover until maybe 2025. Emily Joveski has details. The joint report with the Tourism Industry Association of Ontario contains a host of recommendations from tax incentives to cannabis tourism to affordable housing in order to support staff recruitment. The report says tourism businesses in the province are generating 64% of the revenues they saw in 2019 on average. It also says 7 in 10 have taken on debt to stay afloat. The report also highlights labor challenges, with an 81% increase in tourism and hospitality job postings compared to 2019. Emily Joveski, The Canadian Press, Toronto.
a lot of these things we've talked about in the past, you know, staffing issues, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, and I know governments have tried uh, to lend a hand here financially and otherwise with some incentives and, and some other grants, but uh, the numbers just aren't popping up the way they really should be. And, uh, and that's a, a real concern uh, for our economies and certainly for the people in that industry. To talk about this, uh, please to welcome to the program, uh, Chris Bloor. Chris is the president of the Tourism Industry Association of Ontario. Uh, Chris, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, I'm delighted to be with you, but I can't believe my fire alarm in my building has just gone off. So I apologize if you're hearing anything <laughs> extra. When it rains, it pours, Chris. You know that. <laughs> so that's and Nothing surprises us anymore the way things have gone over the last couple of years with just about all of us, I suppose. Let, let, let's talk a little bit about this. Where There was always a hope, uh, you know, when we started to come out of the pandemic and things started to open up again, that there would be a, a rebound, a bounce back, uh, especially in tourism. It, it just hasn't numbered. The numbers I'm looking at here... Uh, I guess we're now, just as we're closing in at the end of this year, uh, we're about 60% of where you were in 2019 pre-pandemic. And, and that's probably good, but it's not good enough for the people in the industry, is it? No, listen, it's been the best summer that we've had for three years, and that's for several obvious reasons. The borders are now open, the mandates have disappeared, restrictions on capacity and operations have have, have since gone. But yes, it's it's been a very positive summer, but we, we still aren't at those 2019 levels just yet. And the whole point of this report is to acknowledge that, listen, we are on the road to recovery, and some of our businesses have innovated uh, in fantastic ways to attract a different sort of clientele to their businesses over these last three years. But we still do need that support and collaboration with government as well as working within industry to make sure that we don't just get back to those 2019 levels, but go beyond them and start making tourism an even bigger portion of our uh, provincial economy. Have the, the government grants and the programs they've set up, have they been a, a help to you? Yeah, I, I don't think there's any doubt uh, if we hadn't have had the support from the provincial and federal governments over the last three years, uh, the number of businesses in the tourism industry that shuttered permanently would have been a lot higher. We were probably at a six or seven percent shutter rate in the last three years, which when you can, uh, when you think of the fact that many of our businesses had an average revenue loss of over 90 percent for the majority of the pandemic, uh, that's pretty extraordinary. But one of the things that we do touch on the report is that many of the financial supports that we received, particularly from the federal government, were in the form of loans. Now, those loans were really important to keep the lights on, to keep those businesses running, and who are now operating now and welcoming international visitors uh, to Ontario. But those that, that, that debt millstone around their neck is preventing them from expanding, from hiring more Ontarians. And so we are asking for government for debt relief moving forward because we want these businesses hiring Ontarians. We want these businesses cranking up to the levels that they were in 2019. And that means billions of dollars into the Exchequer, into the Treasury at Queen's Park. And so that's why we're asking for debt support. And and yet the magnitude of this, of course, is amazing. When you talk to people in, in this industry, and we've had a number of them on the program over the last couple of years, uh, and as you mentioned, the, the idea of a loan is, is uh, in the short term, that's great. That means I can pay the bills this month. Uh, but that's an added burden uh, to these people. And if you're not getting the income that you did four years ago, uh, you got to wonder, you know, how are we going to be able to sustain this? And and I know that's still a frustration. I mean, you know, the good news is we just found out, I guess, uh, this week, the, the ski hills are opening in Ontario. And that's an industry that's really been hit hard over the last couple of years because of the pandemic. Uh, but a lot of those people, they're small businesses. And, and you know, they're they're really kind of crushed under the debt that's going on right now the government i i know when you say debt relief uh chris a lot of people think well that's debt forgiveness and that may be where they have to go to to try to alleviate some of the pressure here 
There is, and you're absolutely right. We are a, a patchwork, a quilt across this province of very small businesses, medium-sized businesses, and of course, some some bigger businesses. But those small businesses who've taken on these loans, who are now having to meet these uh, uh, loan repayments, uh, they're having to take out extra mortgages. Uh, they're having to make decisions uh, about whether they will actually even continue their business. And this would be the tragedy of the last three years. If we got those businesses through this three-year pandemic, now we start to emerge from it and we look to brighter days and they decide to then uh, close because of debt repayments what about uh, and the extension of some of these government programs as you say they some of them had sunset clauses on them uh, i know that uh, some of the the things that the ontario government has done here i have been of great assistance and you've touched on those uh staycation tax credit that, that was a result of the uh, uh the, the the citizen panel that made some recommendations to the provincial government uh but, but has there been any discussion about making some of these tax credits permanent so that the, this industry can count on that kind of sustainability going forward well that's what the point of this report is is we want to have those conversations now and in the beginning of the next year we think incentivizing travel domestically is a really important part of building on our industry and why the staycation tax credit was so important during the pandemic was because after two and a half years of being told you have to stay at home that it's almost dangerous to go out into public places it was the government saying not only is it safe to get back out there but we want you to support local we want you to support your local businesses so we think incentivization of domestic travel incentivization of bringing business Business travel and business events back into Ontario should be the key plank of any government strategy. Immigration is always going to be tied into this discussion, of course. I mean, you need people to work in the industry uh, because your, your challenges, I guess, Chris, are really uh, double. It's, it's a two-headed monster here. I mean, first of all, you want people to, to come to Ontario and spend money. You want people in Ontario to travel and spend money. But you've got to you've got to staff these these enterprises and these buildings, and and that's been an ongoing challenge for you for the uh, last three years, I guess now. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, when your business gets closed on the Friday and you're not sure whether you're going to be able to reopen on the Monday, it's not been a surprise that we lost at one stage over 100,000 people from our workforce. And we're steadily trying to bring those people back. We're also working with the government on immigration changes, common sense immigration changes that, for instance, allow uh, uh, students who are studying to work within our industry a pathway to permanent residency to be able to work in our industry. But we are doing work to try and make more people attracted, more Canadians, uh, more local residents attracted to work within our industry. And that means we have to look internally as well to see, uh, uh, you know, and try and impact why some people don't consider us a career for them moving forward. And that's why we're working with disabled Ontarians, with Indigenous Ontarians to try and, and, and young Ontarians in high school to show them the potential for working within our industry. And of course, we are raising remuneration rates. We're talking about benefits and sick pay. We're trying to improve the image of our industry and trying to tell people that there is an exciting set of opportunities for people to work within the tourism industry, because you're absolutely right. We're free of capacity limits. The borders are open. But some of our favorite businesses, probably in your community too, are only open four or five days out of the seven because they simply don't have the staff to be open. Uh, and while well, we just talked a second ago about the ski industry and, and you know, the implications for that too. And I you know from our experience up in the Blue Mountain area, uh, it, an awful lot of foreign students and foreign workers come and work here. That's seasonal work, but uh, they have not been allowed to over the last two or three years. I don't know how they're going to deal with that, uh, whether or not those people are even going to come back. If you haven't been here for three years, maybe you've decided to go and do something else someplace else, and you're not going to be available for that sort of thing. So I, I guess some of these these problems, uh, the, the, the businesses don't even understand the magnitude of them until they, they try to open the doors. And uh, it's, it's one of these things where the government's really going to have to be, I think, cognizant of, of what's going on here and, and, and be proactive as opposed to reactive, Chris. 
Yeah, we're seeing Minister Fraser on a federal level and Minister McNaughton on the provincial level actively working with us to try and uh, ensure that our immigration uh, procedures and practices are fit for purpose. But it's definitely a challenge. I apologise for the fire alarm going off again. Uh, But this report... Uh, detail some of those common sense changes but also the work we're trying to do to make sure that we have housing for these people so that they can live and work uh, closely to areas like Blue Mountain. Are you confident uh, one of the nice things about Ontario that I've always been appreciative of is you just mentioned this was a pretty good summer considering what we've gone through over the last three years Uh, but that's summer weather people travel you know there's a lot going on but we have winter tourism in Ontario uh, that can be very, very profitable and, and engaging. And it's taken a hit as well. Uh, are are the, the building blocks in place here for us to, to, to see a recovery this coming winter? Because it hasn't been a very good winter for the last three years. I'm really uh, confident about the winter that we're going to have. I'm I'm very confident because I'm seeing what the operators are doing on the ground. I've been to Blue Mountain many times and seeing the way that they're innovating. They're not just coming back with what they had to offer in 2019. They're coming back with new experiences. Uh, you know, I'm really confident that we could have a very good winter period uh, and hopefully it will uh, continue into the next year. But again, uh, Blue Mountain, uh, you know, I, I work with Blue Mountain Village Association. They're talking about how do we build housing nearby to get our workers uh, close to where they need to work because you know this is all interconnected actually many of the issues we face in our economy are the issues that are facing the tourism industry right now and one of the things that this pandemic has shown is how important the visitor economy is to so many economies across Ontario well as I mentioned because of the the, the interrelation that's going on here I mean you know you tend to uh think of tourist locations like a Blue Mountain or, you know, any number of things, uh, you know, in the summertime, the RBG in the Hamilton Burlington area. Uh, but that's the hotel industry. That's the hospitality industry. That's the restaurant industry. They're all interrelated here. And if one's suffering, they all tend to suffer, don't they? You're absolutely right. And that's the whole point of what the tourism industry has tried to demonstrate over the last last couple of uh, months and during the pandemic you know when you lose a major business event or when you lose a major sporting event it's not just the tourism operators that lose that money it's the restaurants that lose the people coming into their establishments when they're watching their favorite sports it's when those businesses those business events are cancelled that you lose the hotel rooms being full uh, monday to friday and so these are really big challenges not just for the tourism industry but the provincial economy as a whole uh, I hear the alarm going off again. At some point, they're going to knock on the door and evacuate you. So I mean, I, I'm going to let you go at this point, Chris. Uh, it, it's an f- interesting report, and it's it's worth a read, I think, so people can get a, a, an understanding as to what's happening here. And hopefully some of the folks at Queen's Park and in Ottawa uh, will understand the gravity of the situation. Thank you for uh, spending some time with us this morning, Chris. I really appreciate it. I apologize for the alarm. And if people want to read the report in full, it's on our website, on Toyo's website and on the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. And we really appreciate this opportunity to speak about what is such a key part of our economy. Absolutely. Stay safe, Chris, and we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Chris Bloor, president of the Tourism Association of Ontario. And, and you know, in Hamilton, in London, Toronto, I mean, you can write down the list of all the businesses that have suffered as a result of this. And I know there's an effort here to try to get back on, on their feet. Uh, but again, you have to wonder just how sustainable this is going to be if the government doesn't offer some sort of an assistance. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Bank of Canada Governor Tip Macklin was uh, in Vancouver earlier this week uh, with his uh, end of year synopsis, I guess, of what's going on. Uh, it says the bank underestimated how hard it's going to be to actually s- restore supply chains and overheated economy, which is uh, somewhat of a problem and still is for most of us here in this country. He says the central bank is determined to get inflation under control. Here's a little bit of Mr. Macklin's speech. The adjustment will not be easy, but restoring price stability 
is the most important thing we can do to improve the economic and financial well-being of Canadians. Uh, which sounds wonderful, uh, but are we able to do that? And is it within our control? I want to bring Ian Lee into the conversation. Ian is a associate professor, of course, at the Spot School of Business at Carleton University. Ian, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for the time today. Uh, my pleasure, Bill. When, when I hear Mr. Macklin speaking like this, and you look at what's going on globally, including the, the war in Ukraine, et cetera, I, I get the impression sometimes, Ian, that we're kind of like a, 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 the guy in, the, in a, you know, in an autonomous vehicle. You know, we're not controlling it at all. We're just kind of <laughs> watching it happen and hoping that at some point that, that it's going in the right direction. Because a, a lot of the stuff that he's talking about here is not really within our control, is it? Um, you're right um, that uh, the, um, the impetus or the... Uh, uh, for the inflation is coming from outside, so outside of Canada. Uh, yeah. But it, uh, uh, where I, um, I think it's important to note that, notwithstanding that things come from outside Canada, we are an open economy. We're not a closed economy. North Korea is the extreme case of a closed economy. Nothing goes in or out. Of course, we're not North Korea, but we're a much. We're even compared to many other economies. We're much more open. Uh, to free trade, to foreign capital investment, capital can leave, capital can come in, and so forth. And so where I'm going with this is although these external forces, you know, and oil prices and wheat prices because of the invasion of Ukraine are external, that doesn't mean that we are helpless pawns. And so these these forces enter Canada, but then they act on us, the 38 million or 30 million adults in Canada that buy and sell and, you know, buy houses and buy groceries and so forth. So what the Bank of Canada is trying to do is, although they've never said it this bluntly, they're trying to control or influence us inside Canada in how we respond to those forces coming in from outside Canada. And so that's why, I mean, if it was truly nothing we could do they just would sit there and say say well you know everybody just suck it up um but there are things they can do they can raise interest rates it does hurt and it's going to hurt um but um it that what they're regulating or trying to affect is how each of us are responding to those uh external forces that are coming into uh, our country and that's what he was talking about uh in this uh, speech in vancouver but how much control here? Are we just putting band-aids on it? I mean, for instance, he talked about supply chain, uh, a good yeah. deal of that, and you know, supply and demand, and you, that's basic economics. You've, you've told us about this for years now, and that's been disrupted because of the pandemic. Uh, but we don't control the supply chains to a, any great extent here. And uh, that's, the, again, one of those external forces. And until we get that under control, right. how realistic is it that we can get inflation under control? Well, he's not trying to regulate with the interest rates. He's not trying to affect the supply chain because he can't they're outside yeah. of Canada. you just said what he's trying to do is affect us in responding to shortages caused by the supply chain so what do people do when there's shortages and this is we've known this for i mean two thousand years going back to roman times whenever there's a shortage of anything salt apartments houses what do we do we drive up the prices because we try and outbid the other guy I, I, I tell myself, hey, I got more money than the next guy, so I'm going to beat him in the marketplace by bidding up the price and winning the, 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 the product that I'm trying to buy that's in short supply. I mean, that's what 
That's what supply and demand is doing. And when you have a shortage of supply, you have people with wealth. They don't disappear. People with money don't go away and just lie down and play dead. They say, hell, I want that product. I want that car. I want that house. I want that apartment. And so those with money, do what do they, what do, they do? They bid up the price and they drive it up. So what they're trying to do is to put it really bluntly. I mean, the bank doesn't put it this bluntly. Maybe they should. Is they're trying to... Uh, inflict pain on each of us so we won't be so willing to drive up the price of that shortage shortage of good because they're putting some pain on us by taking away some of our surplus money that we have to buy that shortage, that short good, that good that's short in the economy. That's what they're trying to do with interest rates. They're trying to take money out of our pocket that would otherwise be used to try to bid up those prices that are short in the economy. There's a shortfall because of supply chain interruptions. So we're counting on the, the Bank of Canada's policy here, of course, and and the ultimate goal, because Mr. Macklin's talked about this before, he wants to get inflation down around 2 2.5%, uh, and we're nowhere near that right now. Is it realistic in expectations, Ian, that, that we can do this within the next 12 to 18 months, or are we going to be um, therefore, relying on some of these external forces? Right. The Bank of Canada is forecasting that it will be down to 2 to 3% by 2024. Um, I did note Sharon Kozicki, who um, is the deputy governor of the Bank of Canada. Full disclosure, I've met her quite a few times over the years because she and I were both on the board of directors of the Auto Economics Association several years ago. I, I'm not a personal friend of hers at all. I mean, I know her professionally. Very, very intelligent. Extremely competent. And... Um, uh, she gave a speech in Montreal on behalf of the Bank of Canada uh, three or four days ago, five days ago, whatever. And uh, I, I thought it was uh, really uh, fascinating, actually, uh, because uh, what she was uh, arguing was that the inflation is coming down. Now, it's not down at two. She was saying, if you drill down, and Macklem said the same thing, if you drill down below the numbers, it actually is no longer the peak was 81 and depending on which inflation measure you use, yes, you know, it's down to 5.9. And Polaz, governor, former Governor Polaz gave a speech about 10 days ago arguing that the real underneath rate of inflation, when you drill down into the numbers, so we're talking trends and forecasts. And he says the real un underneath rate, core rate of inflation is around 4% right now. And so Polaz was arguing that it's going to come down another percent or so just because supply chains are slowly coming back into balance. And so Polaz was arguing, this is just his argument, and I do find it compelling, was he said, so to get it, what we're really talking about is going from three down to two. In other words, supply chains will bring down one other percent. We're at four now, underlying core rate is four. Supply chains coming down to balance will bring it down to three. And then these interest rate increases will bring it down to two by 2024. So his point was, and I and I and I and Polaz, uh, excuse me, uh, Macklem is saying something similar as is Sharon Kozicki, that they're saying that by 2024, so it's still a year away, we're going to be in the two to three percent range of uh, of inflation. Now that's a forecast; it's a prediction. It can be wrong. Yeah. But um, I think these interest rate increases are cooling the economy. We can see it in real estate, Bill. I mean, prices are down. It takes longer to sell a house. There's less listings on the market and so forth. And um, I'm not trying to say housing is the totality of the economy, but it's a big part. It's a big it chunk, sure and it is cooling. 
So, and then the other thing is, and Polaz makes this point, these interest rate increases take a year and a half to work their way fully through the economy. So we haven't even seen the full impact of these seven rate increases because they were all done in the last six, eight, nine months. So he says they're still working sort of like the snake uh, swallowing a, I don't know, a groundhog <laughs> or something big. It's working its way through the belly of the beast. And so all these interest rate increases, seven of them, are working their way through. They're still having a knock-on effect. And so I'm not saying to you, I think it'll be at exactly two or below two, but I think that uh, by 2024, the inflation rate is going to be significantly lower, probably more around the 3% range than it is where it is now. Ian, that's uh, the most encouraging news I think I've heard in the last 18 months. Thank you so much for this. We're a little pressed for time, but uh, we'll pick this up down the road. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you. Ian Lee from Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.